0: From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Shabbat Zahor. This week, Rabbi Alex Israel discusses Shabbat Zahor. Rabbi Alex Israel is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Alex Israel. Thank you, Larry. This week, in addition to the portion that we read, the Torah portion of Tzatzava, we will engage in an annual ritual which takes place in the lead-up to Purim. As we take out a second Sefer Torah, second Torah scroll, and we read Parshat Zachor, we read the passage which recalls the manner in which the ancient tribe, Amalek, attacked Israel in the wilderness. They attacked the stragglers behind when you were tired and weary, says Sefer in the book of Deuteronomy. And here we uh, make an annual reminder of our national vendetta of the divine mandate, um, our national vendetta against Amalek. This precedes Purim, the festival of Purim, because Haman, that uh, genocidal villain of the Purim story, is traditionally seen as a descendant of Amalek, and, and therefore every year we, we remind ourselves of this story. And it is due to Parshat Zachar, uh, this this uh, reminder about Amalek, that we will read a stunning haftarah about King Saul and what what will be remembered as his greatest sin. And it's this haftarah that I want to study together with you today. I'm going to read this story together with you and hopefully we'll see this narrative as an artful description of the distortion of God's word by politicians, kings, the misappropriation and violation of religious motifs by public figures. This will raise deep questions of integrity and personal weakness, appropriate leadership and what we might call cowardice. These are all pretty pertinent messages at any time, but of course in our times too. But before we go to the book of Samuel and read the story of Saul, I'd just like to make an introduction or two. Introduction number one. As we read this story, uh, we're going to need to make an assumption. And the assumption is this, I can't in this context get into the moral and very thorny questions of the justifications for wiping out Amalek. I know there are questions about whether an ancient attack in the time of the wilderness should uh, be justification for a later attack. And we're just going to have to um check out some of the other past podcasts on this topic on El Mad here with Pardes but for our purposes, we're going to have, to have to accept the version that we see here in the book of Samuel, uh, chapter 15, that Amalek are indeed sinners, um, and therefore they deserve, if you want, a divine instruction to, to kill Amalek. If we can put that aside, then we might be able to, to, to deal with our story. The second thing is that uh, let's talk about King Saul. If you asked a military historian, if you asked a political historian who had even just read the book of Samuel, never mind knowing anything else about King Saul, we would probably think that King Saul was a wonderful, wonderful king. Um, Saul took a country. At that time, Israel was under the occupation of the Philistines. The Philistines totally dominated the Israelites when King Saul came to power. And Saul... His first battle was almost like the the battle for independence. And uh, we read here in chapter 14 in Samuel that uh, Saul secured this kingship over Israel. He waged war on every side against all his enemies, against Moab, Ammon, Edom, the Philistines, the kings of Tsoba in Syria. And wherever he turned, he was devastating. He was triumphant, defeating the Amalekites and saving Israel from those who plundered it. If we just read these verses, we would think that Saul was the most successful king. And indeed he was. He raised the standard of living. We know that from David's eulogy for Saul, where he talks about how Saul um, ensured that the women had uh, golden jewelry and silk robes. And of course, uh, Saul wasn't giving these out as handouts, but rather... What he was doing was uh, being incredibly successful, and the standard of living rose and security in the country grew during his period. However, this story of success is not the story that the Tanakh, the Bible, tells us. Because in the book of Shmuel, if you read uh, the book, Saul is described very much as a failure. And he's a failure because he finds it very difficult to listen to God. And uh, this is actually a remarkable feature of the Tanakh. The Tanakh, in many ways, is a counter-history. It is a subversive story that tells the alternative history, if you want the spiritual counter-story, to the stories of power history. It uh, doesn't tell us the perspective of politics, but rather the perspective of morality, of theology, of the relationship between leaders and, and God, and God's instruction, and the Torah. And these are the benchmarks, the yardsticks, which we use in order to judge the uh, personalities and characters of the biblical story. And in this regard, we're going to see, or rather read this story about Saul, uh, where we're, this is the last of a series of vignettes or stories about Saul. This will be the final one where Saul shows himself uh, really unable to fully carry out God's word, and we're going to see quite why. My last introduction to this story is going to be this. Many of you probably know the outlines of this story, and you'll know that uh, King Saul didn't quite listen to God. And uh, he killed all all of Amalek, but he left one person alive. He left the king. And according to this uh, way of reading the story, it's very, very difficult to understand what Saul did wrong. Uh, Saul killed everybody. He did a wonderful, wonderful job. But he just left the king alive. Um, After all, the very next day, Samuel is going to kill the king. And uh, the question is, okay, he didn't get it 100% right, but he got it 99.99% right. What's wrong? And what we're actually going to see is that it's far more severe than this, and that this is a misreading of the story completely. So what we're going to do very quickly is read the story and then we're going to try and do a small bit of analysis. So um, I'm going to be reading from Sefer Shmuel Aleph, the book of First Samuel, um, chapter 15. And you're welcome to follow along with me or to listen along with me. The story begins um, with a very interesting verse. Pasuk Aleph, verse 1. Vayom shaul oti shalach Hashem al Shmuel, Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, the king, God has sent, had sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Va'ata, and now, Shema lekol divrei Hashem. Listen to the word of God. This is a very rare and unusual introduction to a command. And when I read this, it almost is a premonition. It's almost a cautionary line, which says to Saul, you know, you might really get this wrong. You might not be able to fulfill this. So take extra care and attention to pedantically follow every single rule. And uh, when we read this line as the introduction to the chapter, you know, we really do sense that maybe something ominous is coming. Um, But this is a fascinating introduction. Okay, I'm going to continue reading, and I'm going to read uh, straight through. Thus said the Lord of hosts, says uh, Samuel, I'm exacting the penalty for which I'm elected to Israel, for the attack they made when they were on the road on the way up from Egypt now, go you and attack Amalek and destroy all that belongs to him. Spare no one. Kill men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camel and donkeys. And Shaul mustered the troops and he numbered them at Telaim, 200 men on foot and another 10,000 from Yehudah. And Shaul advanced as far as the city Amalek and lay in wait in the wadi. I'm missing out verse 6. Verse seven: Shaul destroyed Amalek from Havilah all the way to Shor, which is close to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive. He killed all the people, putting them to the sword. But Shaul and the troops spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the second-born, the lambs, and all that was of value. They would not prescribe them. They only destroyed what was cheap and worthless. The word of Lord came to Shmuel, the prophet. I regret that I made Saul king, he said, for he has turned away from me and has not carried out my commandments. Shmuel was distressed and he pleaded with God all night long. I'll just stop here and say, Shmuel really believes in Sha'ul. The prophet really believes in the king and therefore he prays all night long. He wants him to succeed, but God is insistent. And I return back to the chapter. Early in the morning, Shmuel went to meet Sha'ul. Shmuel was told Sha'ul has gone to Carmel, and he has erected a monument for himself. And then he left and went on down to Gilgal. And when Shmuel came to Sha'ul, Sha'ul said to him, Blessed are you to the Lord. Baruch atah Hashem. Hakimoti et devar Hashem. I have fulfilled God's instruction. And Shmuel says to him, In that case, what is the sound of sheep that I am hearing in my ears? and the sh- sound of the bleating of the oxen that I'm hearing. Shaul said, They were brought from Amalek, because the troops spared the choicest of the sheep and oxen for sacrificing to the Lord your God, and they destroyed all the rest. Shmuel said to Shaul, Stop, let me tell you what God said to me last night. Like. Speak, he said. And Shmuel said, You may seem small to yourself, but you are the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, saying, Go and destroy the sinful Amalekites. Make war on them till you have exterminated them. Why did you disobey the Lord and swoop down on the spoil in defiance of the Lord's will? Shaul said to Shmuel, But I did obey the Lord. I performed the mission on which the Lord sent me. I captured King Agag of Amalek, and I destroyed Amalek. And the troops took some of the spoils of the sheep and the oxen, the best of it, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Shemuel said, God doesn't want to delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice. He wants obedience to his command. Surely obedience is better than sacrifice, compliance than the fat of rams. Saul said to Samuel, I did wrong to transgress the Lord's commands and your instructions, but I was afraid of the troops, and I yielded to them. Please forgive my offence and come back with me, and I will bow low to the Lord. But Shmuel said to Shaul, I will not go back with you, for you have rejected the Lord's command, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. This is the story. What is happening in this story? What seems to be the major motif? If I had to look back at this story, uh, let's understand. Shaul has been sent on a very, very delicate mission. He's being asked to do something that no person before him has been asked, to engage in a mission from God, to destroy an entire tribe because of an ancient sin. And in this regard, he's doing something very, very sensitive. When else do we have a situation in which anybody is asked to destroy man and woman from even the babies or all the animals? Uh, this is this is a, 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 an extreme command, highly morally problematic. And the only reason it would be justified was by some sort of divine fiat. The What does Shuttle actually do? Well, to my mind, it's very clear He goes along, and it says that he goes to ir Amalek. He destroys the city of Amalek. Uh, In fact, in a later chapter, in chapter 30 of the book of Samuel, we're going to find out there are still thousands of Amalekites who weren't killed. And not only that, not only does he leave the king alive, but he allows his troops to take all of the best... um, The best sheep, the best oxen. He claims it's for sacrificing to God. However, I have to point out two things. When Shmuel goes to meet Shaul, this is in verse 12, it says, He is setting up for himself a monument. In other words, as Shmuel is talking to Shaul, they're waiting for a big ceremony. And what's the ceremony? There is going to be a victory march. There is going to be uh, all the troops together are going to have a huge rally and they're going to establish an Arc de Triomphe, a monument obelisk to who? To King Saul. Not only that, but the phrase which Samuel uses is Vat'at ala shalal, you swooped down on the spoils. In other words, um, what seems to be happening here is that um, Sha'ul has sort of appropriated this battle for himself. What should be an act of God, and in that regard, the word used for, if you want, killing the Amalekites and for destroying all of the spoil is the word l'acharim, l'acharimam lefi charev, the cherem. What this always means is, a, a sort of, it's a double entendre, because it, it means to destroy on one hand, but it also means to dedicate to God. If, if if Shaul's legitimacy for engaging in this act of genocide is that he's acting on God's command then he has to dedicate the entire war to God. There's no wrong to make a monument to himself as if he has somehow had a victory. It's not his victory. It's God's command. There's no room for anybody to take the spoils of war. The spoils of war are all to be destroyed. That was part of the instruction. Amalek are sinners. Amalek are polluted. Amalek are, are evil. And therefore, everything needs to be destroyed. Oh, if somebody sees a nice ox or a nice sheep, they're going to take it home or even take it to God. You fundamentally misunderstand the command here. More than that, in the same way as, uh, you know, ancient chess, sorry, ancient war is reflected in the game of chess. And we all know that chess isn't over until the king has fallen. Likewise, if you leave Agag alive, why are you leaving the king alive? Are you using him to trade in future Prisoner swaps? Are using him as a trophy of war so that you can mock him as the Philistines did to Samson? Why are you keeping the king to parade him through the streets to celebrate so that King Saul can celebrate? Wow, I have uh, captured another king. Saul is convinced that he's kept the law, and the reason why he's convinced he's kept the law is because essentially he's won the war. But what Saul didn't understand was a critical line that he's been sent on a mission which God has sent him on, and that this is not for him to sit in the driver's seat deciding what to dedicate to God and what to destroy. It is not for him to celebrate this victory and set up his own arc to triumph. Um, And last of all, it seems like, as he says in verse 24, where he says, I did sin. I transgressed God's instruction because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. First of all, instead of taking the blame for himself, he blames the people. But what does he blame the people with? In other words, what does it mean he listened to their voice? They really wanted to bring sacrifices? No, he's been lying all the way through. The bleating of the animals was not for sacrifices. It was exactly what God told him. You swoop down on the spoil. Now, there are hundreds and thousands and maybe tens of thousands of animals which have been taken away because everybody said, oh, what a shame to waste all these high-quality animals. And instead of bringing them to sacrifice, everybody wants to go home with a sheep or an ox or what have you. In other words, if this is a war just for for gain, to fill your pockets, to gain more land or what have you, then you have no legitimacy to to be killing man, woman and child. The only legitimacy would be because this is a religious instruction. In other words, what Saul has done is absolutely and fundamentally misappropriated God's command. He has taken a divine command, and essentially he's manipulating and maneuvering it for his own gain. And how often is this a a tendency to take things which are in the orbit of religion, and then to somehow use them in order to aggrandize, aggrandize ourselves not to serve God, but to act in a self-serving way. And this would seem to be a complete misappropriation, a a sense of mi'ilah, a sense of, if you want, betraying the sanctity of the divine word. Because, if you want, Saul is putting himself instead of God. Now, the end of this story, I think, shows just how deep this goes. Because after Samuel has condemned Saul and said, I don't want to go back with you, remember what Saul asked him to do. He says, come back with me and I will bow low to the Lord. In other words, there's going to be a ceremony. There's going to be a victory march. It's going to include a religious uh, convocation. It's going to include sacrifices. And how will it look for King Saul if if the national prophet is not standing next to him? Saul says to, to Samuel, okay, I sinned, but now come, come along for the ceremony. It's planned for eight o'clock, for primetime television, for the eight o'clock news. And this is when Samuel turns to leave. And here I'm back in the chapter. Saul seizes the corner of his robe and it tore. And Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingship over Israel away from you and given it to another who's worthier than you. How does Saul respond at this point where he gets condemned yet another time and God saying, you're not going to be king? I'm reading from verse 30. Saul pleaded, Hatati, I did wrong, but please honor me in the presence of the elders of my people and in the presence of Israel and come back until I bowed low to the Lord your God. In other words, the show has to go on. Samuel, I know all of your religious uh, uh, peccadilloes. But as far as I'm concerned, I need you at the ceremony now. Come and bow low. Come and supervise the sacrifice. Come and do, uh, be a religious officiary. Uh, uh, and then I'll let you go. It's almost as if Saul does not realise what's going on. This is dreadfully serious to God. This is dreadfully serious to Samuel. Saul doesn't get it. Why is Saul removed from the kingship? Why is he removed over this story? It's not because he leaves a few animals alive. It's not because he he, he didn't kill the king. The reason why Saul is going to lose his throne over this story is because he fund- fundamentally subverts God's instructions. He appropriates a God's war as his own war. He doesn't follow the rules. He makes up the rules as he goes along. Saul is a a weak, spineless leader who, instead of holding true to his principles, as he says about himself, um, he fears the people. When he feels he is losing the people, he decides to alter the, the, the red lines. And this is something we've already seen. If you study the book of Samuel, especially In chapter 13 and 14, Saul is always looking at the opinion polls. He's always looking over his shoulder. He doesn't remain true to principle. He certainly doesn't remain true to the instructions of God. When God established a king, the idea was that this king wasn't simply to be an administrative ruler. The king was meant to be somebody who would lead the nation towards God, who would guide the nation in keeping God's laws who will ensure that the nation of Israel will be mamlechet kohanim vegoy kadosh a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to um, ensure that we have an army officer who can who can defeat the enemy that there are many candidates but Saul was meant to be a person who was meant to on the one hand have the capacity have the charisma in order to lead the people and that he certainly had but also at the same time to keep a different eye on the instructions of god and here he failed dismally. He constantly sidelines God and does even worse than that. He uses God's instruction as an excuse to have a war for himself. A war which should have been a war in the name of, of, of morality becomes simply a war of fame, personal gain, and uh, looting. And in this regard, God says, listen, I can't work with a person like this. This person is essentially... Um, taking divine law and twisting it just for himself. And when we read this story, I see this as a cautionary tale in general about the mix of religion and power, about the ease which with political leaders can be led astray either by the pressures of the people or by simply losing sight of their values, the values with which they came into office. They came into office with certain values, but in the end, uh, they start twisting things in order to serve their own self-interest. And therefore, this story isn't only about our Malik. It's about failures of leadership, and it's about the way that uh, our national, um, the people at the helm of our nation, really have to remain true to the guiding principles um, for which they have been brought into office, for which they have... um, been sent to lead. And I'm recording this uh, on election day in Israel, and uh, here we are voting for a new prime minister at this stage. I have no clue what the results are going to be, but I'm saying this with a prayer that indeed we should uh, be w- worthy of leaders who will indeed lead us, uh, not looking over their shoulder, but serving God and serving the people, serving the values of the nation, but not serving themselves, not corrupt and filling their own pockets, to be in a situation where our leaders are true to their values and hold firm in those values, because those values are the values of the nation of Israel. So I will leave you there. wish you a Shabbat Shalom, and hopefully you'll open a Tanakh and study the story in depth. It really is quite a special story, but it's a story about uh, corrupted values in leadership and a loss of focus. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you, Rabbi Israel. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.